Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament letter of 1 John. You'll find it at the very back of your Bible, just after 2 Peter and just before Jude and Revelation. Honored to preach 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 20 today. As you turn there, let me remind us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It is our commitment and conviction as a church to preach God's word expositionally and faithfully. Expositional preaching in its simplest is preaching that is focused on explaining the meaning of the scripture in its God-given context. The word exposition simply means out of or explanation of. So expositional preaching is the explanation of Scripture that is based on diligent study and careful exegesis of the passage within the context of all the Holy Scriptures. This is the opposite of many attempts of modern day preaching by which pastors are guilty of eisegesis which is when a preacher inserts his own thoughts and priorities into the text out of its God-given context. It's my God-given job to not entertain you today, but to tell you what, or, or to tell you what you want to hear, but is to help you know and understand and apply God's good word to your life. It's a great joy to do this. And so let's go to God with prayer. And pray not only for my preaching today, but for your hearing as well. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this time together. The blood-bought body of Christ. What a joy it is to be yours. We are truly grateful to have in our possession your written word. In our language, so we can understand it, read it, study it, and grow in it. Enlighten us, Lord, to know you as you have revealed yourself. Not, and, and that that would correct the ways that we want to think about you or, or have been taught prior to how you work, that your word would instruct us, that your word would define us and lead us and take us where we need to go. Holy Spirit, do your work in each one, uniquely, perfectly. Lord, help me to stay on point to speak clearly and rightly about your word. Help each person to put away the distractions, the noise, uh, to focus in on you, to listen well, to be humble and ready to be molded, convicted, and moved for your glory and others' good. We love you and pray these things because of Christ. Amen. Look with me at our passage, 1 John chapter 2, 18-20. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. 
while much of John's next point of emphasis carries all the way to verse 23, because there's so much good stuff here, we're going to focus on verses 18 through 20. Lord willing, we'll get all the way through it. Uh, But that's how far we're going to go today. The context of this next portion of John's letter is to address the enemies of the gospel who have been near the church and even among the church, but have since left and showed that they do not belong to Christ and therefore are not a part of Christ's church. John's aim is to bring clarity and encouragement to the true brethren in the anointing they've received in Christ in the midst of this hard reality of the activity of false disciples. As we jump right in, we see John again address the beloved, the church, as children. Children, it is the last hour, he says here in the beginning of verse 18. I quickly want to remind you of what I've highlighted a few times already, as John has spoken this way, referring to the redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ as he writes to them as children. Again, John is simply trying to convey his deep affection for them as family his and his authoritative position over them. He is not aiming to be demeaning or to belittle. John loves them dearly. He wants the best for them, and so he turns to bring clarity about who they are and about those who stand against Christ and his church. Look with me as John writes here in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. There are many ways to understand the meaning of the last hour. Let's start there. First of all, it is not a literal hour, right, that he's speaking of. Because if that was the case, then all of the writers of Scripture who spoke this way would have been wrong since it's not, it was not the last hour, right? Uh, there has been many hours, many generations since the writing of these things. No, the reference in Scripture to the last hour, while some in some context of Scripture are more specific in meaning of actual foretold events, in general, this phrase is used to speak of the last chapter or the last phase of God's plan of redemption for His people and then to bring us into His forever home to enjoy Him forever. When considering God's plan for redemption of the elect, everything has been done on Jesus' part, think about that with me, except His final return, whereby He will bring us into glory. So we can clearly say that we are in the last hour in the same way John is saying it here. The late great reformer Calvin uh, said it this way when responding to John's words here that they were in the last hour. The many ages which have passed away since John's death seem to prove this prophecy false. Right? That's the point I just spoke of. I reply, the apostle, after the common manner which Scripture adopts, warns believers that no more remained but for Christ to appear for the redemption of the world. But he fixed no dates. He did not dupe the men of his age with an empty hope, nor did he mean to curtail the future course of the church and many successions of years during which the church has lasted in the world. 
Indeed, if the eternity of God's kingdom is born in mind, such a long time will seem to us a moment. Right? To, th- if, to whatever degree we can get our heads around eternity, whatever feels like a long time in this time is but a moment. Amen? In this last hour, or we could say final phase of God's plan of redemption, the church is to remain faithful, to live out the God-given priorities of the testimony of the gospel, the making of disciples unto the nations and generations, and the faithful participation and practice of all that God has called us to be as the local church. Now, there are many who will boldly say that we are in the last days. In light of the fact that we are in the final phase of God's redemptive plan, this is true. But the way many intend to say we're in the last days is to say something far more present, to go so far to declare that Christ will come for certainty in our generation. People are saying this. I've heard it said even recently. They proclaim this as things are seeming to be coming to pass as promised in Scripture. And while I do not have a view of when Christ will come, I reject those who so boldly profess that they know this, that they're given signs of what is to come in the final stretch before Jesus comes. But He is clear to say in Scripture that we will not know when He will come. I would contend that while things are bad now, and seemingly getting worse day by day, when we read Scripture, it is pretty clear to say that things will get far worse than they are now. We need to know this so that we do not lose heart or hope for God. We do not lose hope for God, for He has loved us well to tell us it's going to get really hard. Consider Jesus' words when replying to the disciples' inquiry of what is to come and what might be. Matthew chapter 24, 3-14. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be a sign of Your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The last sentence there is super helpful. It's a helpful indicator that we're not there yet. Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
we know that there is still a significant number of people groups and languages that are unreached. They have not been told the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And this is why we as a church are prayerful and committed to supporting and sending missionaries that will bring the gospel to these people. Scripture is clear to say that the end will not come until His purpose from day one is fulfilled. And what is that that we read all throughout Scripture? That He would be known and praised among the tribes, tongues, and nations. So how many tribes, tongues, and nations have not heard about Him that need to hear about Him? Maybe that's helpful for us to have an idea of how maybe close we are. Our best current research shows that there are 17,416 unique and different people groups in the world. 7,403 of them are unreached with the Gospel. Of the 7.84 billion people in the world... The amount of them that is unreached is projected to be around 3.27 billion. That's 42%. Church, there is much to be done. Amen? This is why we must stay diligent in making disciples of Jesus so that of our own church family will come missionaries of the nations and disciple makers of the next generation. Okay? This is, this is Christ's commission on us. This is the priority of our days. So yes, we are in the last hour, the last phase of God's redemptive plan, but there is still more of God's people that God intends to save, and so we, the church, must stay on mission and fulfill His great commission upon us. Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can we just pray for that right now? Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly this morning. We hear your commission upon us. Lord, I pray that we would be doing it. I pray that we'd be serious about the commands of our general of our superior officer, of our master, of our Lord, on our lives. This is the reason you've woke us up today to, to, to put oxygen in our lungs, that we would be a part of fulfilling this great commission as the church. Keep us diligent. Keep us focused. Keep us from being distracted by the enemy. Keep us from, from longing for superficial, temporary things that we would be joyful to be yours and to be on mission in all the good ways you've called us, wherever that might be, however that might be, that we would remain on mission for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look with me now at the next part of what John says in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John turns to speak of the promise and the presence of people who are antichrist. What is, what is an antichrist? An antichrist is an individual who is an adversary of Christ. They're antichrist. And or one who claims to falsely be Christ. John will speak later in this letter about the antichrist in places like 1 John 2.22. We'll see that next week. 1 John 4.3. 2 John 1.7. The word anti in front of the name or title can mean that person 
is against something and or they are trying to claim that they are that thing. The simple reality is that the difference to the offense, that there is little to none difference to the offense. Think about it. A false Christ or someone against Christ are both opposed to the true Christ. Amen? The true Christ who is worthy to be praised. While Jesus and the apostles talked about the Antichrist in Matthew 24, Mark 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, Revelation 12 through 13, as well as others who would willingly stand against God and his people, you might be surprised to know that the term Antichrist is only used right here in 1 John and 2 John, in John's letters. It is not elsewhere in Scripture, although they're clearly speaking of the same kind of affront. The fact that Jesus and the apostles spoke of the Antichrist is how John is able to say, as you have heard. Right? Do you see that in its context? While there is surely reference within Scripture to an individual that serves Satan's corrupt and evil agenda, who will come against Christ in the last days, what John is referencing here are forerunners of the Antichrist who have already come to try to confuse, deceive, or draw away disciples. These are men, are, are, are mere people who are sinfully corrupt and do not speak truth, but they speak lies. These are people who indeed are against Christ and His supreme ways as they try to influence their own agendas upon others and upon the church. Jesus is clear in Matthew 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. You either trust Jesus, obey Jesus, belong to Jesus, or you are against Jesus. There is no middle ground. Understand with me that to be anti-Christ you don't have to be some kind of special demon or super deranged person. No, you just have to be dead in sin, full of self-deception, which essentially all who are not saved are. The fact that some are deemed antichrist is less about the depth of their depravity and more about the reality of their activity. In other words, they prove to be active in revealing their deceived views or agendas in a way by which they are exposed and revealed as blatantly being against Christ and His church. So I ask you, do you belong to Christ or are you against or anti-Christ? What John says next is that it is God's grace to reveal those who are anti-Christ to us, that we can see that they are indeed not of us, but against us and our Lord. Look with me. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. When John says they went out of us, what he is highlighting there is the fact that they once acted like they were part of the body of Christ, likely participated in the local congregation. The fact that they went out means that they have since revealed that they were 
really who they really are by leaving the priority and accountability of Christ and His church. The simple truth is, you are not a real part of Christ's church if you do not belong to Christ. And if you do not belong to Christ, I'm sorry, say it the other way, if you belong to Christ, then you will be a faithful and accountable member of Christ's church. There's a sobering reality that Scripture highlights often that we must never forget. And that is that there will be some who we thought were of us. But they proved to not be of us. Because they're not saved. They do not belong to Jesus. Instead, they were against Jesus. They were anti-Jesus. Jesus speaks of this reality in His day. When it says in John 6, verse 66, After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Even Jesus saw those who proved to not truly be belong to Him to move away, to move on. They looked like they were apart. They, they looked like they were following Him, His disciples, but they proved to be false disciples. Now I share this with you because I want you to see that this is not special or unusual that this happens. It happens all the time. People come and go from the church all the time. They try religion. They try Christianity. And in the end, they prove to not believe into Jesus. They, they prove that they are a false follower of Jesus if they ever projected to be one. They don't endure to the end like the truly saved do. This is a sad but true reality. And it is still happening in churches, not excluding ours. Right? You, you, you don't become some kind of special church where this doesn't happen. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't, we don't control this. We, we are faithful to preach the Word, to to baptize those rightly professing faith, to pour into those with the Word, to raise them up, to disciple them. But if they belong to Jesus or not, that's between them and God. Understand, these are people who are like family. As, they, as we ate with them, we, we served with them, we grew with them, and yet their lack of endurance and perseverance in faith Prove them to never have been one of us. Understand that Scripture doesn't say that they lose their salvation, but instead they reveal they never had it. While they might have walked with Jesus' people, made great advances in life for a time, in the end they proved to be false disciples. This can be really hard to go through. As people you thought belonged to Christ, were part of the blood-bought family, only proved to be against Him. Proved to not be part of the blood-bought family. Not only against Him, but often promoting false teaching, looking to divide the church. Right? Paul warns the Ephesian elders about the reality of those with false faith rising up among the flock and proving to not be in the truth. Acts 20, 28-31 Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after many, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. One of the great litmus tests of true faith, enduring faith, saving faith, is repentance from sin. While we all have moments of sin, lapse of sin, backsliding into sin, we need not have ongoing practice of sin or wholesale wandering from the truth into sin. Or just a plain lack of desire to fight sin, to confess it as sin, and to turn from it. That should be a present reality in the believing. Now, let me say something else here that's important. John is not speaking of people who are in good standing with Christ and His church, but simply exercise their Christian liberty to move to a different town or to change churches in a permissible, God-honoring way over different biblical convictions, priorities, or practices. That's not what we're talking about here. Right? No, these prove to clearly be against Jesus. Later, John will highlight additional evidence that they indeed were anti-Christ. For example, in 1 John 2.22, he says, The liars are the ones who deny that Jesus is the Christ. The Antichrist deny the Father and the Son. And then in 1 John 2.26, we'll see that he says, They tried to lead others astray with deception. Back to 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This is a critical doctrine that we must see rightly. John is referencing the fact that true Christians finish the race. We endure to the end. We don't leave Christ's cause. We don't take up a new cause. We don't abandon Christ's church and pursue different self-defined spiritual roads. Jesus said it well, Mark 13, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3, 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Scripture is clear to say, to speak of what is known as the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Meaning if you truly belong to Jesus in saving faith, you will not abandon that faith. You cannot lose your salvation if you're truly saved. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. This is how John is able to confidently say they would have continued with us. That's not just him speaking real boldly. That's him standing on this biblical truth that the truly saved finish the race. They don't bow out. Now what is never said is that our faith is perfect, meaning it's never without slipping or falter. 
We are still at work. We are still uh, being sanctified. We are still at war with our flesh. That means the greatest Christian will have moments of doubt and struggle. True Christians can have moments or even seasons of great struggle and detour, but they find their way back to the path of righteousness, back to the call of God on their life, back to accountability to the church, joyful joyful submission to their shepherds, to growing and helping others grow in Christ, back to trusting in God despite what they face in this life as being very hard. So can the truly saved fall away, be taken away, or be lost or abandoned ship? The biblical answer is no. They will persevere in faith to the end. Those whom God elects, gives new birth, gives saving faith, gives justification, gives adoption, will one day be glorified. Paul outlined this process in Romans 8.30. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. The slaves of sin, whom he has rescued from bondage, purchased for himself, remain secure and protected in his household forever. Scripture upon Scripture teaches this. If you are truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. If you were taught that you can lose your salvation somewhere along the way, you were taught wrong. That is not a biblical position. It is not what God's Word teaches. Hear Jesus' words. Let them be like a firm rock under your feet. John 10, 27-29 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Church, don't think or talk like the devil is able to get to God's saved people. He is not. That is to give him more power than God. That is not the way the word speaks of who God is and how he works. We need to think biblically about these things. Does the devil come at us? Absolutely. Throwing temptation at us? For sure. Can he get to the truly saved? He cannot. He cannot. He cannot undo their salvation. Jesus' blood is big enough, it's complete enough to cover all sin for those whom it is for. Okay? That's one of my biggest beasts with people who teach that we can lose our salvation. That Jesus' blood was spilled, somehow that's applied to this individual, and then somehow that individual gets out from underneath the atoning work of the blood of Jesus for them, like like there was a mistake in the paperwork, or in the application of God? Just think about that. No. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is one of the most precious truths of Holy Scripture to the born-again Christian. It is a great comfort to know and hope in and rest in the truth 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Philippians 1.6 Before I move on, we must never forget who empowers our faith. It is God. You are dependent on Him. 1 Peter 1.5 We, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is an enduring, a perseverance, a standing through the trial that God does in all of His redeemed. This security doesn't mean that there is not battle, but it means God protects our eternal standing with Him with infallible precision and omnipotent power. God is the one who inspires, nourishes, strengthens, and endures our faith. If indeed that faith is real and not superficial. Christian, God is the power behind the finishing of your faith. Praise God for this. May we remain forever dependent and reliant on Him. And I love the counsel we get in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Back to verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. See with me, this is John's way of showing how God is graciously at work to reveal those who are anti-Christ. To expose them as not truly belonging to Jesus and His blood-bought family. While it is so painful to see people we love and thought were faithful to Christ and His church leave the church, reveal a superficial faith. In the end, it is a blessing to the true church that they are revealed, right? And that we get to see who they really are. I believe this is also good for the individual as well because they're no longer duped into thinking that they are something they're not. Thinking that their faith is saving based on some kind of a mental ascent or man-made religion at work. May they be like Saul, who once was against the church, but by God's sovereign hand was eventually made to be part of the church with saving faith. When the Antichrist, whose intentions are to harm the body, are revealed... It is a blessing that they're revealed so that they can't harm the church anymore with their selfishness, their deception, their manipulation, and their divisiveness. Church, hear me again. This is not new. And it's not done happening. It is a real part of the fallen world. Don't forget that Jesus experienced it too with those who were in His congregation. 
in his local fellowship. I want you to see the verses that follow Jesus' proclamation that many disciples did not continue, proving to be false disciples that we read in John 6, 66. Because I want you to see that Jesus doesn't quit when they left. He doesn't sit down and pout. No, He turns to those who are true disciples and draws them to hold fast to their faith so that they can continue on their mission. Look with me, John 6, 67-69. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The truly saved will say, Lord, to whom shall we go? We're not done yet. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Our faith belongs to you. Our lives belong to you. Let's go. May it be so for us and for all who belong to Christ until he takes us home. Amen. Look with me now at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. When John turns to say, but you, he reveals a contrast to those he was just speaking about. And now he's going to talk to the beloved, the church, as he's writing to those who belong to Christ. John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. The word anointed in the church is a popular word, but do we really know what it means? And are we really using it rightly? One of the origins of anointing comes from the practice of their shepherds with their sheep. Very practical application. Lice and ticks and other insects would often get into the wool of the sheep. And when they got near the sheep's head, they could burrow into the sheep's ears and make them sick or even kill them. So to literally save the sheep, the shepherd would make a mixture of olive oil and anoint the head of the sheep, rubbing the oil into its wool and especially around the nose, eyes, and ears. And from this anointing became a symbolism of blessing, of protection, empowerment, And so in Bible times, people were anointed with oil to signify God's blessing on them or His call on that person's life. To be anointed by God was to be chosen by Him. A person was anointed for a special purpose, to be a king, to be a prophet. We see Aaron and his sons were anointed in this fashion as they are commissioned to be priests in Exodus 40. We see David anointed among his brothers to be the next king in 1 Samuel 16. What about anointing in the New Testament, though? The Greek word used here is charisma. It means the special endowment of the Holy Spirit. In James 
5.14, we see the word anoint, anointing, but there's a different Greek word there. Alipho, which means to apply oil. James 5.14, is anyone sick among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The use of oil in prayers of the elders in those days had a great cultural meaning for the Christian as they were prayed for. In this case, the person is not being given anything new. There's not some kind of superficial power in the oil. No, the Christian has already been anointed by God, as we'll see in a moment, to receive the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they're already blessed beyond measure. The use of the oil is really more of a reminder to them of that of how the Old Testament uh, meant to just show that favor on them. A reorientation maybe for them, um, that they are indeed His. They belong to the Lord and are secure in His power despite whatever they're going through or being commissioned to do. It's similar to what John is doing here in our passage. In the midst of those who are anti-Christ, and proving so by leaving the flock and speaking against him, John is reorienting the beloved to remind them that they are indeed anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and therefore secure in his great power. The anointed by God are the chosen by God to be his witnesses among the nations, to be disciple makers, to be the light in the darkness. And they too will all continue in faith and faithfulness until the end. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Christian, this is to be refreshing for your soul, to be Reminded of the fact that you did not choose God, but God chose you. He saved you. He secured you. And has you in His forever grip. You have been anointed by the Holy One. Our being anointed by the Holy God is to be an undergirding of our certainty in Christ. Our security despite how the world rages against us. Paul also speaks of this great truth in his letters. For example, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Our word here, charisma, the special endowment of the Holy Spirit. John is saying you have that in Christ. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Temple of the Holy Spirit is the Christian. Church, remember with me the words of Paul to the Ephesians that we read in chapter 1. That was a long time ago. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says that Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit does not come at a later junction, not a later ceremony as some have misinterpreted Scripture. Those who have salvation have the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be saved without the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. It's by the work of the Spirit that you're brought from death to life. But our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms a few things I want to mention this morning. Number one, authentic, that you are authentically children of God. We see this testimony found within oneself by the presence of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5.10, we'll get to this later. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms we are also marked as belonging to God. The fruit of the Spirit in a life of a Christian is a marker that displays the Spirit of God dwells within them. That they are His redeemed, that we see fruit in them. Not the work of the flesh, but the work of the Spirit. This points us to the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Sanctification happens at salvation by the work of the Spirit. When people become Christians, the Spirit does an initial cleansing work, making a decisive break with the stain of sin and the chains of sin that were upon us before we were saved. Paul says of the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11, also Titus 3.5. Sanctification is also a work of, that's progressive. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian is, is ongoing until glory. This is progressive sanctification. What is progressive sanctification? It is growing in holiness through obedience to the Lordship of Jesus and His Word from a right heart. By grace, it is a lifelong process powered by the Holy Spirit to change us to become more like Christ. Question 97, Word of Truth Catechism. In this, God brings forth the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as qualities that reflect the character of God. In this work, the Bible tells us that we continually are being changed into His likeness from one degree to another. Paul says in Romans 8.4 that those who are alive in Christ walk, or we could say live, no longer according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See how contrast all of this is to the selfish deception of the lost person who's against Christ. Paul's further encouragements in Romans 8, 5-6, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And Paul's words in Galatians 5, verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Let us see the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify, to refine, to produce fruit as a great marker of our belonging to God, that our faith is not superficial or just plain religion, but it is real. The Spirit is at work. This is John. But you, you have this. You were anointed by the Holy One. See, that is the major contrast, the testimony of those who were against Christ. And what does he say in the last part of verse 20? And you have knowledge. This feeds into where we'll go next week. Two facets of knowledge that are what is true. Um, knowing truth. We're going to get into that next week. But also knowing Christ. To know Him. I want to focus on that today as we close. John has been driving this point from the beginning of the letter. 1 John 1.3 Indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.3 By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments. 1 John 2.13 I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. Christian. True Christian. You know Him. You have true faith into Christ. Not just belief that He's real or that He is who He says He is, but faith that is a complete trust into Him. You have knowledge that is not just what you know in your head, but who you know with your life. You know Him. This is particularly true because the truly saved have the Holy Spirit who plays a vital role in our knowing and being accountable to what is true instead of what is lies. Those who prove to not be of Christ, who prove to be antichrist, those who go out from us, they were never of us. They might have done a lot of good work, but they did not know Jesus. This was his words in Matthew 7, 22 through 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out many demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In opposition to this, those who have saving faith in Jesus, who are anointed in the Holy Spirit, know Him truly and eternally. Again, Jesus' words, John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And I will give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Will there be some who prove to not be of us? Yes. Will this be painful and yet helpful at the same time? Yes. But we are anointed by the Holy One. Saved by grace. Forgiven by His blood. Set free from enslavement to sin. Secured by the power of God. And sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
We have the richest knowledge one could have. Knowing Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. Amen? We exist by His will. We suffer and testify for His namesake. And we will endure to the end by His power. By His grace and for His glory, may it be so. Before I pray, I want to set our time of communion at the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He enjoyed the final Passover meal with His disciples. It was there that Jesus gave the specific instructions for a new ordinance. A a new practice, a new tradition called the Lord's Supper. Listen to to his words in Luke 22, 14 through 18. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is about to be the very fulfillment that that Passover celebration for all his generations pointed to. And this is why he's so excited to enjoy it with them. The time has come. But he's also clear that it will be the last time they celebrate this together as he's about to do a work in the place of his people that will mean that they will take on a new testimony in what's called the Lord's Supper. Until he returns and calls us home, whereby we will celebrate together at the table again when his kingdom is fulfilled. There's a celebration coming, church. What does that look like? Isaiah 25, 6-9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord that we have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Church, we look forward to the mighty return of our Savior, of our King. But until then, He has given us a testimony to to give and a work to do in making disciples unto the nations. Part of that testimony is what he gives us in the Lord's Supper. Jesus continued, verse 19 through 20. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus lifted two elements from the Passover table that he said, We, the church, are to use as a sign and symbol of the Lord's Supper until he returns. That is the unleavened bread and the cup of wine. Both of these have rich symbolism all throughout Scripture and are an important part of this formal practice of the church, the church that belongs to the Lord Jesus. 
it is important that we honor the Lord by taking them faithfully as we testify what He has done. We do this by faith. It is important that we come to the table with a genuine testimony of repentance and faith in Christ alone, not in our own works, not in anything else. We bring nothing with us but Christ alone in whom we hope and trust. If you have trusted Jesus with your life, then obey your master by eating the unleavened bread and drinking the wine as he has instructed us to until he comes. Confess your sin and know that you're forgiven in Christ. Thank him for what he's done and worship him. Know that as you do this, you make much of the gospel until he comes again. If you are not yet saved and have not truly trusted Jesus with your life, then he is not Lord of your life. And therefore, this is not for you to participate in, but it's for you to observe. It is a testimony for you to view that none of these people did anything to merit this. They're guilty in their sin, deserving of wrath, and it's by God's grace alone that they are saved. The work of Jesus on their behalf alone that they are saved. That is the gospel. And only if you confess your sin before the Lord and trust your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior are you saved to die to self and live to Christ. Until that is you, this is for you to see, to witness, to consider your standing before the Holy God. And if today, later today, tomorrow, four years, whenever that is you, then you will join us at the table now and forever in salvation, in celebration of our Lord. There are four tables around the room. As we sing the next song, as you're ready, Christians, you can go to the table to receive the unleavened bread and to take a small cup of the wine. Take that back to your seat. You can partake in it as you are ready. Be prayerful. Do this by faith. Trust the Lord. Honor Him as He's commissioned us. Let us worship Him in this time. I'll be back in a moment to read a scripture before closing our service with one final song. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives, for, for the work that you're doing in this passage. Lord, as we look to it with surrender, with humility, ready for you to, to move in us, to, 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 to conform and to shape us into the image of your Son, to, to, to sanctify us. And so we are thankful, Lord. We're thankful for your work, even when that's hard. Even in some of these seasons that are hard, we, we walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we who are anointed by the Holy One, we rejoice today. We rejoice in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, and the work of the Holy Spirit ongoingly. And so we come to you to practice the Lord's Supper, to, to do it faithfully. We ask that you do your mighty work in the lost in this place and around the world this day, to save many. Oh God, what a joy it is to, to know you, to, to worship you. Hear our prayers. Work in this testimony for your perfect purposes. We praise your holy name. It's because of Christ that we pray. Amen.